Welcome to today's episode of the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. So glad to have you here. I'm Ross Romano, and my guest today is Patrick Harris II. Patrick is a middle school humanities teacher outside of Detroit. Uh, he's currently in his eighth year of teaching, and his book is called The First Five, A Love Letter to Teachers. It's a memoir with a call to action. He writes about his early life, what brought him to the education profession. He outlines the lessons learned in his first five years of teaching, as well as insights from other educators. Um, you can learn more about him in the bio below, but th this conversation, given that the book is really a memoir with a lot of personal stories, we're going to get into a lot of it here. So Patrick, so glad to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's it's awesome. And uh, uh, here's my first question. Here's the big one. Why did you uh -oh. write the book? Why did I write the book? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Why did I write the book? You know... I felt like I had had such a turbulent five years um, mm -hmm. that I felt like I had to like reflect on that, on that journey. Right. Um, I always knew that I wanted to write a book and I have been very fortunate enough to be offered an opportunity and to be able to work alongside an incredible publisher who always, um, um, asked me what I thought or what I was thinking about. Um, and it was after, you know, returning back from Qatar, you know, that fourth year and going to my fifth school in my fifth year that I just sort of thought about the journey um, that I had gone through. And I just sort of reflected on how, you know, teachers are given so many, so, so many tools to put in our toolbox and we're given so many strategies to enact but none of those really um were substantial enough to keep me in a place um that allowed me to sort of like plant my roots and my feet that really allowed me to find my teacher identity and while they were helpful I felt like there was something else missing. And so I realized, you know, with the success of my own podcast and with the success of, you know, the communities that I had built online and in person that like there, it was time for um, a book that was just story driven, not strategy driven. Mm -hmm. And that really helped me to, uh, to just kind of like make the decision to actually write a book about my first five years of teaching. I, I had also read, uh, read this book by Dr. Michelle Foster called Black Teachers on Teaching. Um, and that was a book of interviews from Black teachers from across um, generations, right, who had taught through um, integration or the lack thereof. Um, and kind of their firsthand accounts of how their teaching journeys shifted and changed in the fifties uh, and sixties. And that really also inspired me to take a story-driven approach. So I think all of those together pushed me to create the first five. And I also just felt like teachers really needed a love letter, right? Like right. something written for us that doesn't assume that we don't know what to do something written for us that doesn't assume that we are not dedicated or that we are not professionals, right? Like something that really pushes, um, that that meets us where we are and that meets us with intelligence, um, craft, 
humor and uh, real raw stories. Yeah. And you mentioned having had you previously had your podcast and you so you had some practice um, with sharing your experiences and your stories from teaching. Um, and I but I think part of the, you know, evolution or graduation into the book is that um, you're now you know, would be sharing them in a medium that you're much more likely to also be sharing a lot of those stories with your friends and family, right? With people who, if there's one thing to talk to others in your profession or strangers, right? There, there's a certain comfort level we have versus saying, you know, talking about the, you know, not just what you do in your job to, to people who don't also have the same job, but also other stories from your life right. um, that you may or may not have, have discussed with those close relations before. I mean, what has that been like kind of getting to that point of saying, okay, I really want to, I want this book to be honest. I want to really, you know, tell the things that are most important to tell, but I'm also, you know, sharing them with new people that in the past, um, I, you know, I may not have, have shared with. Yeah, that was really challenging for me. Um, I knew that if I was going to write a book like this, I had to tell the whole truth, right? And, and without filter, um, that had been the biggest success for me um, in doing the Common Sense podcast with my best friend, Antonia. You know, the feedback that we got was how raw and how real we told our stories, right? Um, and in a world of social media, like where everything is super produced and everything is super intentional, right? Like, right. I it, it was all, also a clap back to that like culture that was sort of happening at that time um, where everybody was showing the best lessons in their classroom and sharing the best moments and everybody was coming across as a perfect teacher. Um, and this sort of like saying that sort of goes out that says, if you just do this, right? If you just try this strategy, if you just order this book if you just do this one thing right then this change will happen in your classroom this change will happen in your practice this change will happen in your school and I always remember saying like that wasn't my experience right um and so like I really wanted to just take the opportunity to just tell the whole story and I knew from working in five schools in five years and working in a variety of communities, public, charter, private, you know, tuition-free and tuition-based private school, right? Like the thing that I kept coming um, coming home with is, is just this idea that I felt like my humanity was not seen, considered, or valued. Um, and if I wanted to... V- you know, really change that, then I had to start seeing my own self as human, right? You know, like so often educators, including myself, we call ourselves teachers and we wear it as this badge of pride and honor and it consumes all of our identity, right? Before I tell you who I am, I tell you I'm a teacher and that tells you a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But actually behind that, right? behind the title um, really is a human being with stories, right? With pain, with trauma, with a family um, who, who has experienced some things. And I think that 
I had to really dig into that to dig into like what my why really is. I had to dig into my story to figure out why, right? Like I was bouncing around from school to school or why I was responding to students in a certain way, right? And so really realizing my full humanity was a huge part of this assignment. And it's been really cool to see the response, not just from teachers, but from people for across several different professions, right? Like post-pandemic, folks are really resonating with this idea of seeing themselves as whole human beings and not allowing systems to dictate, right, who they are and who they become, right? Not letting our workplace, you know, consume our lives, um, but really taking um, taking ownership, right, over over ourselves and our stories. Yeah, and, and you, t- you talked about the social media you know, culture of that overproduced, uh, you know, the the toxic positivity. I, oh. you, know, you called it in a, a previous interview, right? And I mean, how did how would you found that balance? And and the, I think you know responsibility that you may have felt to say, I need to kind of tackle that. I need to be honest and authentic. Um, but also I don't want to be discouraging, right? right? Just to use one of the statistics, right? I think about 2% of teachers are black males, for example, like we want to increase that number. So we, we don't want it to, to seem like there's, this is a bad profession, but at the same time, like it, it can be just as discouraging to see people for whom everything seems easy and, you know, right. because, because it's not really like that. Yeah. Um, you know, how have you found kind of navigating that, you know, telling your true story, talking about the things that are challenges, but also, you know, presenting the entirety of it? Well, I know that even in my first five years of teaching that there were moments where I felt very proud of myself. Mm-hmm. where I felt very proud of my students. And so I would be telling a lie, right? If I only told the discouraging parts of this profession, teaching is such a complicated profession where you feel so many emotions and sometimes all at once, right? Like we feel that urgency, we feel anger, we feel um, sadness, but we also feel inspired. We also feel creative. We 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 also feel... Um, um, just like, ex- like just, just thrilled to kind of be in a space where we are growing constantly with other human beings. Teaching is um a really interesting profession because it's it's a it's a profession that requires you to be the best version of yourself at all times, and that's kind of wild. Um, and I think that within that I have grown so much and I think that the book yes it's a it's a memoir and it's a book of story but it's also a book about the power of reflection right and so I knew I had a dream I knew I had a why that was worth holding on to so I was not going to allow for the hardships to to deter my dream, right? 
And so I had to get clear about what were those reflection questions that I was asking myself at that time mm-hmm. that kept me in the profession, right? That 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 allowed me to keep showing up every day, right? Because we know that half of teachers leave after their first five years. I'm on year right. eight. I'm still here, right? That's something worth talking about. And so um, I, I also knew that I was not alone in the work, right? Um, so that's why I had to bring in those other voices to show that like, hey, this might be challenging. I don't have the answer, but here are some questions that you might be able to answer for yourself in your context, because I believe in you and the power that you have and the intelligence that you hold and the creativity you possess, right? Like to develop something that works, especially for you. I don't believe in one size fits all um, solutions for teachers. I, I think even the mere idea of a best practice um, is worth investigating. <laughs> yeah. But I think that generally um, with every bit of frustration um, has been some goodness that has given me hope. And that's because of the power of reflection. Yeah. And, and, you know, with respect to the power of reflection, I mean, it, it kind of inherent in that is that it's oftentimes it's impossible to have a clear picture of that without the benefit of hindsight. And sometimes that's near hindsight, but sometimes it's much further down the road. Right. Right. Um, and right. so, for example, uh, you share statistics in the book about you know, the difference in outcomes among, um, say, black male students, if they did or did not have any uh, black or black male teachers, right? Mm-hmm. And this is something that, uh, you know, most kids as they're going through school, you're not necessarily cognizant of that right. um, until you are asked about it, or you think about it later and say, oh, yeah, when I was in school, I never had any, <laughs> I never had any teachers that looked like this, or, you know, and, right. and obviously, you know, as a student, consciously or unconsciously, whether or not you're surrounded by, you know, authority figures that look like you. Um, But, you know, if it's just what you're used to, you're not necessarily, and and especially in your case, when you had in in mind that you wanted to go into that profession, right, how it would or would not have affected that objective, depending on the teachers that you had. Um, and in, in your case as well, having been a first generation college student, right, which, you know, I assume probably means that you're, you're the first generation that goes into this profession. So it wasn't just because this is what my parents did and that's what I did or, you know, but it was if you when you look in the hindsight of it now, how much did it mean to you um, to have had, you know, some teachers that that looked like you, some teachers that that were that you could see. Um, you know, role models that were representative. Yeah, you know, it was everything. I grew up um, in Detroit, which is one of the blackest cities in America. But I went to school in Southfield, which was a black suburb right on the edge, right, of Detroit, you know. And there was a part of time where I lived in Detroit but I went to school in Southfield it was very complicated but you know like Detroit and Southfield are like cousins right like 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 they share a street um called eight mile road and um so basically like 
I've had black teachers my entire life, right? Like, and that's really all I know. Um, I talk about in the book, um, sort of having a preschool teacher who, you know, went out of their way to allow me to come into the classroom uh, and spend the day there, even though I wasn't eligible, right, for preschool at the time, I was too young. Um, and as I kind of matriculated up and through elementary and middle high school, right, like I just was exposed to so many incredible, not just teachers, but human beings, right? Like the first person I ever called doctor outside of a medical office was Dr. Veda Cook, right? My marketing teacher in in, in high school. Right. Um, one of my first black male teachers was Rudy Hobbs, who's now a county commissioner. Um, my high school English teacher, Tori Moss, was not just a teacher, but she was also a voice actress and a and a commercial star at the time, right? Like I had an incredible first grade teacher who did some incredible things. My music teacher in elementary school was a chamber choir singer. And I had a gospel music, you know, star as my, right? Like, so like, I just had some incredible black teachers who not only showed me the magic of teaching, but really blew up these four walls that we call a classroom and say like, actually there's also more too, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's not just about what you can do in a classroom, but you can actually model what it means to be a whole person, right? Like somebody who has multiple dreams, creative dreams, and you can show that, right? And so like, as somebody like myself who loves writing books, who loves um, podcasting, who loves hiking, who loves business and strategy and all those cool things, right? Like they showed me that I don't have to choose, but I could be all those things. And that being a classroom teacher provides me with so many skills, mm -hmm. um, advocacy, creativity, leadership, love, right? All of those things that can help me to be the best version of myself while also um, helping the community. And then I also think it's important to give ode to the people in my life who are educators, but were not teachers, right? Okay. And so like, I definitely give um, honor to my mother whose conversations I used to eavesdrop on. And that's how I learned how to write stories, right? I give honor to um, my grandparents who took me on you know, road trips and showed me how big the world was. I definitely give honor to um, my grandmother, right? Uh, who also who sat down and made me uh, record her soap operas on the VCR. And that, you know, was a lesson in technology and video production, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like all these things. Um, I had aunts who taught me a lot of music history, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Prince, Genuine, all these singers, right? And took me to concerts and talked to me so much, right? So like, I just had so many people around me who taught me a variety of lessons that made me want to step into the classroom um, as a teacher and do a variety of other things. Yeah. And um, so you mentioned bringing your, your whole self to that role and you, uh, you know, one of the chapters in the book is about teaching in 360 degrees. Can yes. you talk about what that means and why that's important? That's my favorite chapter um, in the book. And Essentially, it is an extension from Dr. Yolanda Seeley Ruiz's work 
around this idea of the archaeology of self, right? If mm-hmm. you can decide for yourself and say that teachers are indeed human first, right? Right. Then that means that we got stories to tell. That means that we don't walk into the classroom with a blank slate, right? Like we're not superhero. We don't live in the classroom, but we go home to a family, right? In a particular neighborhood, we call our parents, right? Um, and so teaching in 360 degrees is like how we as humans who teach do human work. So um, essentially teachers are always, always, always teaching to their younger selves, right? When you step into the classroom, every decision that you make, every possible way that you teach a lesson, you're constantly thinking about the teacher that you loved or a teacher that you really needed growing up, period, or that someone you loved really, really needed. Right. So you're always looking behind you, right? And at the same time, you're getting to know the students who are right in front of you, right? Like you're looking beside you and saying, okay, who do I have in front of me? Who am I getting to know? What do my students need from me? Who do they need me to be today, right here, right now, right? While at the same time, teachers are always um, forward thinking. We're always future-minded, right? And so we're legacy builders. So we're always thinking about what can I do today in my classroom that makes it easier for the next generation of teachers, for the next generation of students, um, for 10, 15 years when I'm gone, right? Like what change am I making? And so that is what it means to do human work, to do all three of those things, to look behind you, to look beside and to be looking forward all at the same time. And, and, and that is a dizzy dance that we do as teachers every single day. Um, but it's a part of the human work that makes this whole thing worth it, right? Um, teaching is such a multidimensional work where you're healing yourself, right? Or hurting yourself. Depends on what you're doing in the classroom. I don't know. Uh, but like, you, you know, like you're thinking about yourself, you're thinking about your students and you're thinking about that next generation of, of students at all times. And that is kind of like the 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 depth of like what we do. It's not it's not about curriculum, not about standards. Right. But it's about really impacting, you know. The human beings, including ourselves, that we come in contact with. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I've done a, a lot of work recently, had a lot of discussions with educators around uh, teacher recruitment and retention and how do yeah. we kind of address this shortage, right? And, and the two right. themes that keep coming up are, okay, here's the motivators why people come into the profession is because they had a great experience in school and they want other kids to have the same or they didn't have a great experience and they don't want other kids to have the same. You put it, uh, you know, in a great way of teachers thinking about the teacher they really loved and the teacher they really needed, right? Which is those same two buckets. It's when I was there, what was my experience like? And yeah. how do I want my students to have a similar or a different experience based on how that was? Um, and, you know, and a part of that and, and the teaching in 360 degrees and is, is, you know, unfortunately, uh, this is a it's a contentious concept, right? Yeah. Um, with uh, particularly with respect to the, you know, the the entirety of of teachers and the human work, and uh, you know, to to use a specific example, of course, students and and educators who are 
um, LGBTQIA, you know, queer, in other words, like for students to either have or not have a exposure or role model for a teacher who mm -hmm. is able to be them authentic selves in that way that, you know, whereas there's a lot of pushback on teachers shouldn't be themselves because somehow that's harmful to students, how right. harmful it is to those kids when they don't have that. Um, and, and, you know, to the, you know, you, you had some statistics around during the pandemic in particular, the isolation um, that students were feeling and the higher rates of, um, you know, students who were considering the suicide and other things. And, and to understand that that's, that's a reality is that's, you know, this is a, this is a really important place for kids to learn about how to explore and to be um, their entire selves. And when that's treated as a bad thing, um, you know, there's, I mean, there's serious implications. I didn't have any um, openly queer teachers growing up. Um, I had some teachers who, you know, bent the gender norms. And mm -hmm. I talk about that in uh, in one of the chapters in the book, having a, a male teacher who I thought at the time wore girls clothing. Um, but I don't think I had like an openly gay teacher or an openly trans teacher um at the time and i knew that um when i came in that that was really scary for me right because i faced a lot of discrimination from my classmates k through 12 right like i did not have the easiest coming out experience in college and I just didn't know the way that I would tackle that as a teacher. And so for the majority of my teaching career, I did not talk about being queer whatsoever. Um, not until the pandemic really was the year that I said, I'm going to walk into this year and, and like really own all of my identity. Now that I got a mask on and a, and a shield on and all that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that really opened up so many doors for um, my students to come and also talk to me about their experiences as well right and then I felt healed you know like by those conversations right like the like that younger Patrick who really needed right someone to tell him that it was okay it was that it was okay to be who he already was right like right. at a young age um, I was able to do that for other students, which in turn, I was able to do that also for my younger self. And so um, the, the, that's like the beauty of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's not always easy because there are sometimes some, uh, some things that you want to do for your younger self that are in direct opposition or contradiction to the needs of your current students. Right. Like not everything that we learned as a kid in grade school was healthy for us. Right. Times have changed. These students, you know, now are a little different. Right. Like like we didn't live through a pandemic, in, you know, through our schooling. And so like. The 360 model is not so much a matter of fact as it is 
a model for reflection, right? So like when you when something happens in, in a classroom and you respond in a certain way, right? Like you ask yourself the question, you know, I did, like you can fill in these blanks. My student responded or my student did this. So I did or thought this because mm -hmm. when I was in school, blank, right? right? And if you can like feel in that, then I think that like that can give you, that can either confirm like that you're doing the, the, the right thing, right? Based on whatever the, the, the action is, or you might need to tweak some things. Quick example, three years ago, um, four, like four years ago, students came in that's so gay really gay etc cetera, etc cetera. um just a whole bunch of like um homophobic like macroaggressions really not towards anybody in particular but like to each other and I said nothing because when I was in school I was you know talked down upon threatened uh just for even appearing feminine right for even being suspected of being gay right and so if I said something to students in that moment that I might then experience that very same thing that I experienced when I was younger trauma don't mm. want that for myself right? right um and so I had to get clear about that that being the reason why I never said anything to those students in that moment does it make it right that just it 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 just creates clarity and now that I know better, I can do better. And so then I had to get clear about, okay, maybe I need to go to therapy and like really like sit with myself in this and like really get, you know, some some healing for like for myself. Or I had to go and talk to some colleagues about and open up about, you know, needing help and navigating this type of experience, right? Or I had to just like boss up and and like try something new, right? Like, and so I, it's the 360 theory is so much of it is a matter of fact as it is a reflection model that can help us to make better decisions, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and with you know respect to knowing your why and why you got into this work that that's an important part of the book as well. And it comes up and, um, and, you know, there's a section about how, you know, essentially there's the, the story you tell, and then there's more of it and there's more of it and there's more of it. And it's not that any version of the story is, is untrue, but it's that there's always these different layers, right. you know, for most, for most educators now, if you just went up to some teacher and, and you said, hey, what's your why? Why'd you? And right. without any preparation, do you think most educators know the entirety of their why? Have they spent the time reflected on that? I mean, they know you, a piece think... of it. They absolutely know a piece of it. And but I don't think that they, that they talk about themselves enough. Right. Like, no. I think it's always like. I want to make a difference in the lives of children. I want to you know, liberate, you know, our people or, right, like, um, but I think that they have to also, like, realize and understand that, like, their story, right, mm -hmm. like, as human beings is so tangled in their why, 
no matter how simple it it is right and so like they have to understand we spend a lot of time in school like a big chunk of our lives of our lifespan as human beings is spent in the K through 12 system right mm-hmm. and if we choose to re-enter that system after spending 13 years there you ought to know that that is influencing the way in which we show up mm-hmm. <laughs> and why we want to go back again because there are some people who graduate high school or not and never step foot in another school for the rest of their lives right and that's a part of their story too so I think it's 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 really also about really digging into your whole story right like sitting with yourself understanding right like what your family taught you about education and how that will influence the way that you show up what you learned about teaching and education from tv shows oh my god when i was young um that's so raven right like high school musical uh the cheetah girls freaking hey arnold as told by Ginger, all those shows where the where the majority of kids were in school. Right. I mean, that also plays a part in why I also was influenced to also think about being thinking about being a teacher, right? Like they were having fun. That that was a big part. I spent a lot of time of my childhood in front of a television. You know what I mean? Um, so I think it's just about educators also seeing themselves as human beings and taking the time to dig into their own story and realizing that whatever experience you had, it's going to show up in your teaching. Right. Yeah. And and it's, um, it's really important, I think, for educators to have a, a real sense of the ownership of that and so that they can utilize it to their benefit and not have it used against them. Right. And, yeah. and it's like so many things where, um, you know, rec- uh, recently on the podcast, we had Amber Harper talking about her book, Hacking Teacher Burnout. And what she mm. says about the burnout is, you know, your burnout is not your fault, but it's your responsibility, right? Saying to teachers, okay, what are the things you can do? Uh, and that's an important thing for teachers to understand what's in their control. And then on the flip side, of course, like administrators, um, have to have a positive role in that and not a detrimental role. Um, And the same thing with these teachers who are able to understand and articulate their why and, you know, use that as the thing that tethers them to their mission and, and keeps them kind of focused on what they want to achieve and allows them also to be a positive advocate for, you know, what drew them to the profession so that the next generation and the next, because I mean, equity is not happening in isolation, right? Right. I mean, we're also like planting seeds for what comes next, but that same thing can be used as a cudgel to say, you know, stop complaining. Remember why you're here. Stop doing, Mm -hmm. you know, you were here and, and, and you did also, you know, you wrote in the the introduction that your greatest fear in writing the book is that readers might think it's too teacher centered in, in work that's mm-hmm. student centered and, and thinking of that as a, a dichotomy, right. That those mm. two things happen separately from one another um, right. instead of saying, look, can we accept and understand that 
the context here and the fundamental mission is that yeah. everybody's here because we're student centered. Yes. But we can have conversations also about the things that we need and that we're trying to work on in ourselves yeah. without it being used against us to say, well, you're you're just worried about yourself. That's not that's not the job. We cannot say that we are supporting students while silencing, degrading, and belittling teachers and their stories, right? Like, we we have to have conversations as adults about who we are and where we come from and what we believe about ourselves and our identities and the identities and, and communities of our students, right? Like, that that has to be a part of the work. How many times has something in the community happened or in the world in current events happened that has shaken our students? And the first thing educators do is say, oh, how am I gonna teach this, right, to my kids? When really it's no, how are you gonna have a conversation with the adults across the hall? Because that piece is probably more crucial than us going to children. It's not taking away, I believe, um, and this is somebody who chooses to believe that the majority of educators who are in classrooms right now have children's best interests at heart. Um, I I fundamentally believe that when we do and when we focus on teachers and we create the best conditions for teachers, then we also create the best conditions for students because a happy teacher and a satisfied teacher, I think also, you know, that trickles down um, or trickles across to students, um, which I think is really important. Right, yeah, and that's the, you know, unintended consequence or or perhaps the thing that just mm, <laughs> depends on how much credit um, we wanna give some people for for acting in good faith, but that it's mm. the thing that it works to the, the detriment of students because it's the the attitude that drives teachers from the profession and then has you know that turnover and then students end up with less experienced teachers or they end up with a future where you know there's shortages and we're not graduating teachers and we have all these things happening um, because you know we can't we can't uh, properly treat teachers as professionals and um, allow them to flourish in their roles uh, without, you know, trying to turn everything about the job against them into, you know, if it's viewed as a, again, it's a, it's an ongoing, consistent, persistent, continuous objective here. It's, it's, we, you know, we don't want it to be thought of as the kind of thing where it's, oh, I did my time and then I you know I I did a couple of years of this and then I moved on to the other thing well um okay but now like what's next for the kids <laughs> what's next? and so um but that's kind of you know a, a, a terminology that I've I guess I made up um but that I some kind of use around this is like forced martyrdom <laughs> like if everything is like imposed upon teachers like that makes it feel like it's a, a charitable mission and it's not a profession um then it's like well yeah any amount of time you're able to put into that you, you just kind of you know you, you sacrifice as much as you can um and then ultimately there's you know there's nothing else coming for you your needs aren't going to be met so if, if you can't handle it anymore i guess 
move on to something else. Um, and, and, you know, and that is a, that's not a very student-centered attitude, right? Um, you know, you, so, the, so the argument will be, you're not being student-centered and yet the, the students are the victims of that, just, you know, just as much as the teachers are. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's critical to be able to have those conversations among and also across, you know, not just among teachers, but across um, roles in education, across roles outside of education to kind of really define, you know, what is the reality of this? Uh, you know, and you, you write about it as this the human work, right? And uh, what does that mean? And, um, you know, and why do some of the prevailing attitudes contradict that? Uh, you know, well, another thing, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that a lot of the conversations I've been having recently and the work I've been doing is around that recruitment and retention piece. Um, and one of the things is, you know, it's not just, I mean, there's the overall issue, of course, of um, just there are not enough teachers graduating from universities and there's just not, you know, there's not enough support for getting people in a profession, but um, a piece of that is also the, the lack of inclusivity or the lack of intentionality around inclusive recruitment and retention and creating environments uh, whereby, um, you know, diverse educators feel comfortable and welcomed and and encouraged um, to enter the profession. Part of that is, I mean, if you look at it would it would seem to make sense that if the you know demographic breakdown of the students in our schools is not equivalent to the educators that okay, well here's where here's where all those missing educators are. They're in all mm. these, they're in all these demographic groups that are underrepresented, right? right <laughs> because right. if everybody was coming into the profession in equal proportions to, um, to their overall population representation, then it would, it would look different. Um, mm. We might still need, have more work to do. Um, but do you, I mean, do you have based on, and, and you've been in so many different schools and, um, had a lot of experience with this, but have you had any thoughts that you've reflected on regarding um, what schools overall, you know, in general, um, can be doing, um, and particularly for, you know, for those school leaders who have this top of mind to, to in, you know, increase the, the inclusivity of their recruitment efforts or, you know, the environment they're creating in ways that, you know, they just may not have thought about before, you know, it, it hasn't necessarily crossed their mind because they think I'm just working with the, the pool of candidates that's out there, right? right. Um, but there could be certain blind spots within that to say, well, there were some other candidates that, you know, just never came on the radar because the school wasn't, it just didn't seem like the kind of place where they were going to be interested. What I know for sure is that according to Education Week, you know, the number one thing that teachers need to um, to remain and to come into the profession is more money, right? Like you spoke a little bit earlier about how this is not charitable work, right? This is a profession where people go and pay a lot of money to get credentialed, where they spend a lot of money and time and professional development, where they work outside of their contract hours by design um, and thus teachers want to be compensated 
for their work, right? And so um, particularly when we're talking about um, teachers of color, right, who may not have um, the, you know, the wealth, right, who may not come from the wealth, um, right, but who 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 may need to really pr- pr- provide for their family. Something that I have thought about a lot over the last couple of years is like, how sustainable is this, right? Like my parents are 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 getting older, and they're looking to me, little old me, you know, sixth grade teacher, right, to like support them in their older years. And I don't necessarily know um, if the profession is sustainable enough monetarily for me to be able to not only just support me as a single person with no kids, but also be able to support um, my parents and my grandparents who, you know, are are getting older. So they're going to have to find a way to really pay people fairly um, and um, and and quickly. <laughs> right. right. Um, and that has to also trickle, trickle up to the veteran educators who are really um, or who have been in that work for a very long time. Right. I think that there were uh, or or there are lots of programs, right, that are like paying for teachers to get their credentials that are like giving teachers sign on bonuses, but they're not really like paying teachers who have been there, who have been in the work, who have been through the various um, changes and not having contracts to having contracts. So I think that, uh, that, that we have to also pay our veterans who have shown their commitment to our schools and our children. That is really, really crucial. And then yeah, I think, yeah. and then I think that we also have to think about um just 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 how we can um support teachers in this work um because when you come into the profession there's a shock right like there is a point in time where you're like wait a minute you know this is not the this is not what i thought it was and I think that many teachers are looking for, they're looking for the support from their administrators, right? Um, and from the school districts, but more often than not, they're kind of, you know, pushed into the deep end and told to sink or swim. Um, and they're juggling curriculum, they're juggling student behaviors, they're juggling um, work-life balance, on top of not being paid fairly. Um, and so we have to also figure out how we can better support um, teachers. And then something that we don't often talk about, um, particular, particularly for younger teachers, is that need for autonomy, right? And creativity, Thank right? You. Like we are growing up, or I grew up in, you know, in the age of, um, in the beginnings of the internet, um, I've seen the internet go from AOL to where it is today. Um, and I've also seen a variety of creative industries that have um, sort of risen um, in the digital era that we are currently in. And I feel like education and teaching is one of those industries that really um, 
has failed in the innovation department. Um, there's really no reason why classrooms should be looking the same way in 2023 as they did in 1923. Um, and especially when so many of, you know, so many workplaces in the private sector are like light years ahead of us in leadership models and innovation tactics and technology and investments, right? Like, and, and I think one way that we try to um, battle that as teachers is we want autonomy to make our lessons as innovative as possible, right? But when school districts pay millions of dollars to corporate um, curriculum writers and publishers, um, then teachers are kind of put in a box and we are not able to be as creative. And more often than not, those curriculum one-size-fits-alls you know, boxes are written for um, white kids, right? And are not written with black kids um, or kids of color in mind. And so I think the quicker we can um, pay teachers, the more that we can support them and the more that we can give them time to create and collaborate, I think we may be able to um, show that this is a worthwhile profession. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, a lot of that failure of innovation is exactly, as you said, it's uh, a failure to, to, uh, you know, permit or encourage teachers to innovate and to say, you know, it's almost the, um, you know, the chapter you have in the book about uh, autonomy and about, you know, uh, the ways in which technology is used and this technology replaced teachers and et cetera is, is because the, top town imposition of certain technologies is not really leveraging mm -hmm. technology right? Mm -hmm. versus saying hey te teachers go out and find some different ideas that might work for you right. Um, right now there's a lot of exploration of course of ai tools and what might that mean and you know what are the different capabilities there and just things like that where it's, it's going to be a lot more innovative if, if teachers are driving it um, and it's also going to maintain kind of the individual expertise and artistry and the profession of uh, teachers finding things that seem to be working for them and their students um, versus thinking about quote unquote innovation as as a top down process, which uh, will, you know, by, by virtue of, right. uh, of its implementation have some limitations. Um, so, you know, we're, we're getting closer to the end here. One of the things I did want to touch on yeah. is, you know, you write. Certainly, like this is a memoir. It's your personal experience. Not every not every teacher will have had the same experience as you. But you also do talk to a lot of other educators and share their perspectives in the book. What are some of the things you learned by talking to those folks that you maybe that maybe you know you hadn't really thought about or realized, or was just so different from your experience that it gave you some new perspectives as well? Yeah, I think the cool part about that was. Some of these people were my friends. Some of these people were like complete strangers, right? And um, I just really enjoyed hearing again how they sort of, you know, reflected on their own experiences as human beings. Um, and I think it just really showed me like the power of really thinking about our parents and our upbringings and how so much of that shapes the way that we um, interact with kids like every single day. 
and I think whether you're in like rural areas or suburban areas and urban areas, right? Like, I think I've also learned through these interviews that we got a lot more in common than we do difference. Um, schooling, and I think I've learned that, you know, hopping around from school to school, right? Is that like every school has its issue, right? Every school has its thing. Um, and teachers are struggling across the board to figure out how to do this thing we call education. Um, but it's something about kind of like the shared love and this like this like burning passion and this like this this like great hope that a lot of teachers have that come from being able to work with young people every day that I think like really inspired that really inspired me um and so I, I think there's a lot of work to do and I think that if the book doesn't teach folks anything I hope that they know that they're not the only people in this work on the ground every day dead ass teaching kids in you know like it's not about just my story, right? But it's a that's that's why I include other educators because I want folks to know that like it's not just me facing this, right? It's it's everybody. You're not alone in this work. Like we're all out here trying to figure this thing out. Um, and I think like knowing that, having that little community in the book, right, might give teachers kind of the room to stay a little bit longer. Yeah, absolutely. So uh if a reader could only read one part of the book this is this is a question i like to wrap up with uh, frequently what yeah. part of the book would you say what which chapter or which section would you say check out this part this is this is where you should start i would definitely say start with um ooh. i would definitely say start with start with just start from the beginning start with chapter one <laughs> I lied about my why I, I think starting from the beginning is the best place um is the best place to start um for for those because I think you get a chance to really get to know me as an author but I think in getting to know me you get a chance to really get to know yourself and I think that that's the that's the overall purpose of the book Excellent. So uh, listeners, we're going to put, we'll put a link to find the book down in the show notes. We'll put um, social media handles. Uh, Patrick, is there anything else that you'd like people to check out or look for? Uh, no, they can just follow me on Instagram and Twitter at President Pat. Um, if you want to get in contact with me, you can visit my website, www.itspatrickharris.com, where I write all types of cool things um and i'm looking forward to connecting with the people great so thanks so much for coming on the authority uh listeners like yeah find the link to to purchase the first five below um you also find all of patrick's information there and please do subscribe to the authority for more of these in-depth author interviews or visit thepodcast.network to learn about all of our network shows and we look forward to connecting with you again next time